Welcome to Season 5 of KnowledgeCast, hosted by Jack Williams. We're excited about this season's guest, and you can learn more about this new season along with our guest in previous seasons at jackwwilliams.com slash podcast. Now let's listen in to an all-new episode with Jack and this week's special guest. Welcome to our fifth season of KnowledgeCast. Glad you joined us today, and if you're a first-time listener, welcome. And if you're one of our regulars, thanks for coming back. Today's guest is Steve Zelnick. Steve is the former chairman and CEO of Martin Marietta, retiring from the board in 2020 when Martin Marietta had a market capitalization uh, exceeding over $14 billion and 9,000 employees. He's held numerous leadership roles, including chairman of Beezer Homes USA, chairman of NC State uh, Physical and Mathematical Science Foundation, the board of Echogensis, and is an emeritus board member of the Georgia Tech Foundation. He's a graduate of Georgia Tech, has an MBA and an MS in administrative science from the University of Alabama system. And Steve is currently uh, actively uh, investing in uh, numerous companies. He's also a member of four business and educational hall of fames. I, I could go on and on with things Steve has been involved in, but we wouldn't have any time for, for questions. So Steve, uh, welcome. Thanks for being with us today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, Jack. Been looking forward to it. Well, Steve, I purposely left uh, out one thing in your bio, and that was your time in the U.S. Army. You were in an area of specialty work where there really probably wasn't a very long list of candidates waiting to sign up to do that type of work. And that type of work that I'm referring to was being part of the Explosive Ordnance Disposal Unit, in other words, the bomb unit. What created an interest in that area of the Army? And, and tell us what you learned during that time, other than making sure that you cut the wires in the right order? Well, I was assigned to Aberdeen Proving Grounds for Officer Basic, and the Army, in its wisdom, decided that I should be a motor maintenance officer and have a couple of hundred of enlisted people, and I'm making sure that they're properly repairing Jeeps and trucks. And, and that sounded about as exciting to me as watching grass grow. <laughs> I, I looked at that and I said, there's got to be some way out of this to do something different that is more interesting. And lo and behold, about halfway through officer basic, these two recruiters come in and they're pitching explosive ordnance disposal. And I listened carefully. Uh, it sounded pretty exciting to me, a little bit dangerous, but, uh, you know, kind of goes with the turf. But clearly I was going to learn a lot. And you either did the job well or there were consequences. So <laughs> kind of like athletics, you need to do what you're doing well. So, you know, there were a couple of things that attracted me. They, they gave me a promise that my first assignment would be in the Southeast. And that was a big deal, particularly for my wife. Uh, they also gave you hazardous duty pay and pay for a lieutenant. Lieutenant was $330 a month. I had a family, but you got $110 a month extra for hazardous duty pay. Well, that made the difference in living and scraping by. It was really a big deal. So those things got my attention and I signed up. You had to sign up for an extra year because you spent nine months in schooling, learning how to disarm everything from a hand grenade to a nuclear weapon. And, you know, very challenging, very interesting. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to go back to the Southeast assignment. 
because that's an interesting story. I'm just about through with my training. I've got six weeks left of nuclear weapons training. And I get a call from the Pentagon from some major. And he says, Lieutenant Zelnack, I am pleased to tell you that you're going to be the new commander of the EOD unit at Camp Drum in Schenectady, New York. Well, I'm pretty good with that. <laughs> That's not in the Southeast. That's not in the Southeast. New York. And I, I mean, I was shocked. Uh, it, was, it wasn't what I expected for sure. And I just blurted out. I said, no, sir, I don't think so. And you can imagine some lowly lieutenant saying that to a Pentagon major. So he gave me up one side and down the other and said, yes, you are going there. And I said, well, let me tell you why I'm not. And I said, I haven't graduated from EOD school yet. And I've got six weeks left to complete nuclear weapons training. And I can tell you, I can promise you that I'm smart enough to fail every test over the next six weeks. And at that point, you won't be sending me to Camp Drum. In fact, you won't be sending me anywhere for EOD assignments. So, uh, you know, he had some choice words for me, as you might expect. But in the end, he knew I had him. And uh, he said, okay, I'll give you a week to go find a slot in the Southeast. Took me two days. I found uh, a great slot in Huntsville, Alabama, at Redstone Arsenal. Uh, EOD testing and training division for the entire country. I wound up running the testing and training. And later on at the end, the Justice Department set up a school for improvised explosive devices, those nice little things where you do cut the wires. Right. And we got to train civilian police in uh, that particular specialty. So it, it was a wonderful time. I learned so much. And, you know, little did I know, but, you know, I'm going to wind up in the aggregates business where the starting point for production is to blow up rocks. I was going to say, you you kind of went right back to square one. It's not very often that a lieutenant gets to uh, tell a major no and live to tell the story. So uh, that might have been a sign of your leadership skills uh, well, or, budding early. Or, you know, gross stupidity. But either way, I wasn't going to connect <laughs> I don't I don't blame you. Well, after your time in the Army, you started uh, uh, in the aggregate world with Vulcan Materials, and your career uh, took off there when you were asked to assume a market research position for them. Describe how that occurred and what that role was and how that kind of catapulted you. Well, I needed a job. I was coming out of the Army, and uh, I was scrambling back in that day. You didn't have the Internet yet. Uh, you looked in the newspaper and I saw this ad for a company called Vulcan Materials in Birmingham. I'd never heard of them. They did something called aggregates, which I'd also never heard of. But I did have a little market research experience in between Georgia Tech and going in the Army. So I applied and they, they were very thorough in their interviewing and, their interviewing and they hired me. So I went in there and uh, had no idea what to expect, but you know, I do know that work ethic counts. And when I got into that market research department, one of the first things I noticed was that everybody came in late and everybody went home early. So my personal strategy is I got in early and I went home late. And the beauty of it, which I didn't know when I started doing that, was that the senior executives of the company 
would make a round of the building about 30 minutes after it closed just to see who was there. Interesting. So, so they got to know me really well. I mean, you know, the tippy top guys. And what happened was they began to assign me special projects. They asked if I wanted to do them. You know, the answer was always yes. And so I started doing special projects for them, which led to them putting me out on the road uh, as representative of the company to explain inflation, which was high at that time, to the industry and how to react to it. And that sort of catapulted me in the industry. I got w really well known in the industry and uh, took off from there. I, I was an entry-level market analyst and in three years I was director of market research. And being an ambitious kind of guy, my question was, how long do I have to wait before I'm a vice president? And, <laughs> You know, the answer was, you know, you're way too young to be a vice president. You know, it's going to be a while. You're going to have to have some time and grade. And I just listened. So uh, I was there five years to the day. I had a competitor come along. They offered me a vice president job. They doubled my pay. They gave me a company car. They gave me a bonus program, none of which I had. And they gave me stock options. And I said, you know what? That's a pretty good deal even though we're going to have to move to Pennsylvania for it. So we did. Yeah, that's worth going a little bit north for right there, yeah. that kind of package. Well, I was there two and a half years, and then Martin Marietta came calling and uh, spent a year in Bethesda, Maryland, their headquarters. They were trying to figure out whether they were going to stay in the aggregates business or get out. They weren't doing very well. And uh, they put me to work to try to figure it out. So... You know, about uh, six, seven months in, I had to make a presentation to the chairman CEO. And uh, he was a crusty old uh, Navy uh, captain. Uh, had a reputation of destroying people in presentations. And I said, this is going to be fun. <laughs> so, yeah, I went in there and I, you know, I prepared for over six months. So I thought I was as ready as could be. And I go in and I start laying out, you know, Martin Marietta's and X counties in the country as a, you know, Y market share. And he says, how many counties are there in the United States? Oh, wow. I said, God is good. I know the answer. <laughs> so I spit out the answer. And, uh, you know, he got this great big grin on his face. And I said, I've got this guy. So <laughs> we had a great presentation. And at the end, he came up to me and he said, look, you're the first person who has ever explained the aggregates business to me in a way that I can understand. And it made a difference because they were reorganizing and they were going to put somebody else down there to run it. And there were three candidates. I was one of the three. And I had the CEO chairman on my side. So guess who got the job? That's right. So those are the, that's the only two votes you need. That, that was it. So at any rate, they sent me down to Raleigh to uh, take, take this uh, newly minted division. Uh, there were a lot of things that needed to be fixed. It was a seven-day-a-week job, stayed a seven-day-a-week job, just the nature of it. And uh, we got it fixed. Took about three years to really get it fixed. And in five years, Year's time, we were 7% of the profit of the airspace, big airspace corporation, or excuse me, 7% of the revenue and 21% of the profit. 
Wow. And they kind of liked us. That'll get, you, were, that'll get their attention. It does. And they, they were growing lickety split with the Reagan expansion in defense. And I began to talk to them about uh, maybe letting us take this company public. And it took a little while to sell it because they really didn't want to part company with us. We, we were low maintenance. We just shipped cash north of Bethesda. And they love that part. But ultimately, they agreed to let us go public, which uh, going public is the most exciting thing I did in my career. Um, let's let's talk about let's talk about that a minute. First of all, you know when, when you became chairman and CEO uh, of Martin Marietta for that that group, and you led them through that transformation. What you know what was your strategy? to make the moves that you made with the company before going public? Well, we needed to make the company uh, a lot more profitable than it was in order to make it attractive in the marketplace. So we concentrated on that. We got our overhead down. We improved our productivity. And that's how we got the numbers that we got in terms of profit growth versus revenue growth. And we spent a lot of time trying to make sure that we had the right people to uh, take the company public. Now, in the interim, Martin Marietta had another business that they didn't know what to do with. It's called uh, Magnesia Products. And that business was losing money, about $5 million a year. So they gave it to me, and they said, fix it or sell it. Uh, before I finished up, we were making $85 million a year in that business. Great question. So, so we did some good things with it. But... That was part of the package that made us larger, which really helped us go public. Let's talk about going public. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of our listeners probably don't know what a painstaking task that is to take a private company public. Walk us through, you know, that process of all that's involved in uh, in going from one position to the other. Well, you you know, the going public part is grueling. Uh, you have to ally with an investment banker. In our case, it was Morgan Stanley. Uh, they get out front. They set up all the meetings because really, you know, I became from an operating guy, I became a stock salesman because that's mm -hmm. what my job was. And uh, I, I had a little bit of an advantage in getting it, prying it loose from the aerospace company. The CFO of the aerospace company was a Georgia Tech guy. The number two guy, the acquisitions and uh, you know, mergers guy was a Georgia Tech guy. So I had two allies sitting in key positions who really helped me. So uh, you know, we, we started out, uh, the, the idea was to sell a piece of the company because we thought that would be really enticing, uh, come back for a second bite later and do the rest of it. So we put together a roadshow that's the way you do this you go out on the road i did 54 presentations in 13 days in europe and the united states good gracious that's 13 days yeah so the first presentation is in europe we did that as a warm-up we have an allocation of stock for europe and uh, my first presentation was to a pension firm called scottish widows I mean, the name, name in and of itself sort of tells you yeah. the meter. So I walk in, and there's six dour Scots on the other side of the table. 
I gave them my best presentation. I tried to interject a little humor. They don't understand humor, so that was a wasted effort. And at the end of it, the, the Morgan Stanley sales guy is not allowed to come in. It's just me and the Scots. So it was an hour, pre all these presentations are an hour. And we got through, they asked a lot of questions, good questions. And I came out and the Morgan Stanley guy, so how do you think it went? I said, well, I'm not so sure. I said, you know, they, they didn't react the way most people do to my presentations. He said, well, they're a little bit different. Let's wait until tomorrow and we'll find out. So the next morning he says, well, he said, uh, they have uh, opted to put in an order for the entire European allocation. Oh, wow. I said, this is called a good start. Yeah, that, I was going to say, that's it. you want to can that presentation. Um, we did. We did three days over there. We were three times oversold for the entire offering by the time we got out of Europe, came back to the U.S., had 10 more days to go. And uh, by the time we, we quit keeping book on orders the eighth day in the U.S., we had orders, we had 8.8 .8 million shares to sell, and we had orders for over 100 million shares. I don't think I've ever heard a story like that. That's incredible. Well, it, it's uh, supply demand because we started out with a $19 share price, and we ended up with $23 share price. And we were totally sold out. Uh, it, it, they, they told me it was the best IPO done over a 10-year period. So I felt good about that. Scott's made a profit before it was even finished. Yeah, for sure. Oh, well, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I've ever seen a, heard of an offering that went, went that strong that quick. Well, we went. We came back two years later, and we sold the other 81% of the company, and we did it in a unique transaction called a split-off, and that's where uh, Lockheed Martin was going to use our stock that they owned and trade it for Lockheed Martin stock. In other words, using stock for stock as, as a buyback currency. Mm -hmm. And that particular transaction at the time was the most successful one ever done, a successful split off. So we made these guys a lot of money and they were tickled with us. And we were kind of tickled too because we were independent and free. We had money, we were able to go grow. And in fact, we did 62 acquisitions over the next eight years. Gracious. Well, uh, obviously, that, uh, that whole process of going public was a major success for the company and the shareholders. Well, now you spend time personally investing in a, in a variety of companies. When you're out there looking to uh, evaluate a company before investing or getting involved in some aspect, what are you looking for? What are, what are the variables you, you check? Well, you want a company that has uh, profitability and positive cash flow. Uh, you're going to have to fix it anyway, but you don't want too much fixing. Uh, you want a general manager because, you know, I can't run around the country playing general manager for various businesses. My oldest son has been my partner in most of this, and he can't either. He's in Atlanta. I'm in Raleigh. So we've got to have a person that impresses us as a good general manager. So those are the key things we're looking for. Other than that, we're not retail guys. Uh, so we stay away from retail. And uh, you know, we've been very involved in precision machine shops. Uh, we've sold four of those. We got one more to sell ultimately, and it's doing really well. 
and we bought a company in Huntsville, Alabama, interestingly enough, that was a plasma coatings company. You've probably heard of all the uh, uh, things that are going on with firing missiles and other weapons from space. Right. Put coatings on them to keep them from burning up when they re-enter the atmosphere. That's what we did at that company. Uh, we sold it year before last, did very, very well with it. And we still have that one machine shop left, which is right here in Raleigh. And then I bought uh, a distribution company, uh, industrial distribution company. And like most of these things I get into, I didn't know anything about it, but you know, I learned pretty fast. And I secured a partner to work with me. Yeah, I have to admit, I, I'm 78 years old now. We bought that when I was 75. You know, I, I need somebody who can work with me and handle some things that I would have done on my own earlier. But we're growing lickety split there. And then I own a minority interest in a, a company that is a robotics automation company. And those are the three companies I'm involved in right now. Well, you're into uh, growing sectors for sure. Uh, at 78, what's down the road for Steve Zelding? What's your next uh, venture? Well, we've I've, I've got uh, three private equity investments, one of which is the uh, waste energy company called uh, Ecogensis, which is has some unique technology. Uh, very excited about it, and we'll see where it goes. Uh, we're we're in an active phase right now, trying to really get geared up in the marketplace, and we're doing a lot of board meetings and uh, trying to roll things out with the company. So that's that's a big deal for me. Uh, I enjoy it, and the reality is, uh, you know, you can solve a lot of the world's problems with this process. It uses organic garbage as input. And out the back comes a coal-like, clean coal-like product that burns at 9,600 BTU, which is the BTU rate that Matilda's coal burns at. Mm -hmm. Right. Pretty, pretty cool stuff. Well, interesting. Well, Steve, listen, thank you again for, for taking time out of your uh, busy day at 78. Most 78-year-old folks are not as active as you are, to say the least. Uh, and we really, you know, you shared some some powerful insights and, and experiences that I'm sure our listeners enjoyed hearing and uh, continued success in your business ventures. And I know you're also very active in, in numerous uh, educational projects. So really appreciate you spending time with us today. Well, thanks, Jack. I enjoyed it very much. Uh, yeah, stimulating to talk to you. Appreciate it much. Well, folks, thanks for being with us today. I, I look forward to having you back with us next week as we spend time with uh, another interesting guest like Steve. And until then, make sure you are being a positive influence in the lives of others.